I was hanging out the towels. We were trying to save the world. I was picking up the house. Why don't you put it down? Come over. Come over. Welcome to Femidish, a podcast that seeks to explore the intersections of food and feminism by exploring women's unique relationships with food and celebrating their abilities to nourish themselves and one another. Joining me today is my co-host, Sandy. Hi, everybody. And I'm, of course, Hope. <laughs> and also, today, I'm really excited um, for our guest, Saul Dalla. Hi, Saul. Hello. Saul is a retreat chef and intuitive cooking coach, and she is also the author of her new book, 10 Steps of a More Joyful Relationship with Food. So welcome to our podcast. Thank you very much for having me. So where are you calling from? I am calling from a slightly grey and not very warm southwest London. Wow, yeah, it, uh, it's also very grey and gloomy uh, where we are here in Maine as well, and a little bit thunder and lightning, which is kind of fun and adds a little spooky element to recording today. I actually changed my um, recording space because I have a skylight in my normal recording space and the rain was quite loud when we were setting up. So I'm downstairs where there are no skylights. <laughs> I don't know if you had the same experience as we did, but for I think the first sort of eight or nine weeks of lockdown, so from the end of March until sort of the beginning of June, we just had the most insane weather. It was just sunny and hot all day. Um, and for the last few weeks, we've we've been... Uh, paying back for it, shall we say. <laughs> well, at least it wasn't the other way around. I could imagine going into a quarantine situation with dark and gloomy and rain would just like really put a big damper on things. <laughs> it's true, but then I guess it would have kept people inside a bit more. But I think we would have all gone completely bonkers. So um, I'm lucky enough to have a garden, so I didn't have to contest with um, busy parks and beaches, and I can just sort of stay in my little oasis. That's nice. How has London been when it comes to, to quarantine? How has it been in, um, in Britain? Um, that is an interesting question. Um, I think we've sort of done a slightly more polite version of what's happened in the States. Um, okay. It's been a little bit confused. It's not been particularly clear. I think at the beginning we did quite well in terms of people did, did obey, but I think at the moment sort of a bit of people aren't that keen to wear masks and there's a bit of confusion and whether it's going to be made law and things like that so um you know it's I think people are getting impatient now and sort of have lockdown fatigue we've all got zoom fatigue as well so I think it's you know it's that sort of four or five months in it's getting a bit a bit difficult but fingers crossed as long as we sort of stay sensible um we'll come out the other side soon yeah, that sounds really similar to what it's been like over here. A lot of confusion and then just fatigue and um, not be feeling a little bit uncertain about what the rules are and what will be the rules coming in the in the future in this fall, too. So that, that makes sense that you got that Britain would be the, similar to the U.S., but just a little more polite. <laughs> exactly. I mean, that's normally how I describe most situations in Britain at the moment. Like our political situation is quite similar as well. It's just more polite. <laughs> Although, except for Parliament, I have heard that Parliament can get a little bit wild, right? Well, I mean, I think that those days are gone because there's only oh. about 15 people allowed in now and they're all dialing in from wherever they are. And 
um, you know, I'm not sure that we're going to be back in uh, 600 people in one room in a small room in Westminster ever again. That's a really good point. You're right. <laughs> Quarantine, taking the wild out of Parliament. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> well, they might be able to focus on doing their jobs then. No, there you go. <laughs> for better or for worse. Yeah, true, true. Careful what you wish for. So we love uh, connecting with all of our international guests and kind of comparing our different experiences, especially since this, pro this project launched during such crazy times with quarantine and the coronavirus and all that. But why we actually brought you on here was to talk about your work. Um, now, you are the food witch. What? I am. What is the food witch? What what is she like? What is her day like? Um, what is she all about? <laughs> so that's a very good question. I think the most succinct way that I can put it is she's obsessed with food. Um, <laughs> it's been something that I think for a long time I try to push to a, a hobby or to one side. But <clears throat> if I think back through every point in my life, um, I have always just been connected to food in a way that is you know, beyond, not normal, but beyond what most people experience and obsessed with it in a way that is only, you know, usually really, really positive and really life affirming. And the food, which is sort of my, my journey to try and harness the thing that is unique to me and the thing that gives me the most joy in life, which is my connection to food and try and figure out how I can share that with other people. And that's the journey that I kind of started um, last year when I decided to rebrand and, and do this change and work in this space. And for me, it's, it's sort of still evolving. And at the moment, it's really, really interesting with everything that's going on in the world, how that's also shaping what I do and how I do it. Um, so yeah, it's all about our intuitive connection to food, which is the thing that kind of defines, I guess, my relationship with food and trying to get other people to also have that connection, which for me is one of the things that brings the most joy in terms of our relationship with food. That's really nice. I see a lot in your website and some of the, um, you know, your social media and stuff, you, you use terms like magic and, you know, really kind of evoking this little bit of a, of a, a otherworldly relationship when it comes to food and it comes to eating and, um, you know, having that strong relationship with food. You also talk a lot about intuitive eating. Can you explain for us what intuitive eating is? What does that mean? So, <clears throat> If I'm honest, I kind of take issue with um, having to attach the label intuitive to anything when it comes to food. And I, I realize that I do it myself, but it's it's because we have to re we have to remind ourselves that our relationship with food is one of the most intuitive things that we have in our human experience. And we forget because there are so many external factors. There's diet culture, there's capitalism, there's the commercialization of food and cooking all of which lead us down this mindset of those things now being externally driven and externally defined and it removes our innate connection to it whether it's through our bodies or through our minds or through our emotions or through our connection at a soul level and for me 
the fact that we have to call these things intuitive eating and intuitive cooking um says a lot because it is actually just eating or just cooking like they are by definition intuitive things they are completely driven by your body by your mind by your soul and there is there is no reason why any external force should actually have a say in what you're eating why you're eating it when you're eating how much you're eating like how how those things can have any idea of what your body needs what your spirit needs at that time is kind of beyond me yet we've gotten to this place where those things are so ingrained in us and diet culture is so ingrained in everything that we do and the sort of patriarchal fear-based mindset which surrounds a lot of what we do is now seeping into our relationship with food and it's removed our connection to our intuition when it comes to food and and the truth is our connection to our intuition is being fought against by all of these forces not just when it comes to food you know we're constantly all battling these should mentalities and these negative stories and these difficult relationships with ourselves and it's our intuition that kind of saves us when we are connected to it and how I came about this was from my own journey of self-development and I didn't you know, I've always had this great relationship with food. I've always loved food. It's always been my passion, the thing that brings me the most joy. But what I didn't have was a connection to my intuition in any other regard. Um, and it's been working on that whilst also kind of owning the fact that I want to do what I'm doing and do it and, you know, not sort of compromise my mission and my dreams, you know, regardless of what should mentalities I might be struggling with it's sort of all come together for me into sort of this intuitive cooking journey which is what I want to share with people because it's it's bringing everything that I've learned from my self-development journey and everything I know about my connection to food to try and bring that to other people I think this is incredibly interesting and important because um I've always considered myself sort of lucky because I've always been like, I have this great relationship with food. I eat when I'm hungry. I eat what I want. Um, but I also see this real connection between like what you're talking about, of like knowing what your body and even your soul might want to consume nutrition wise. Um, but also about like the actual act of cooking and like how to create delicious food. A lot of it is an art or you use your intuition to like how much of this or how much of that. Um, unlike baking where a lot of people compare that more to a science because, you know, if you add a little too much of this or that, you might not end up with cookies. You could end up with a brownie. <laughs> I mean, that's so true, but I guess my answer to that would be that that is how you intuitively learn how much flour goes into a brownie versus a cookie. <laughs> and, and that's, that's kind of what, I, what I really teach people. And it's, you're right. It's much easier to do it when you put baking aside because, you know, it is a science definitely, but, you know, I, I, I do often, I'm not going to lie, I write things down, recipes, and I kind of have an idea of what it's going to come out like, and it comes out in another way. And then, you know, that's how recipes are created. It's an intuitive process that's, that's kind of strong armed into a, a formula that can be sold. And it's not about the story, or the process behind it. It's about the thing that is consistently replicatable 
and sellable from a commercial perspective. And so um, at the moment, it's been really, really interesting because everything that's been going on um, with Black Lives Matter and all of the protests has created this big movement. And I'm trying to connect into the the thinking and the activism that's going on around um, ethnic minorities in the food and hospitality industry. And this is one of the things that keeps coming up a lot is different food cultures approach food in different ways, yet we're asked to put those into a commercial formula that is defined by somebody else, right? Somebody else decided that that's how a recipe should be and that's what people want and they gave it to them and forevermore that is how recipes should be and the story is removed and the intuition is removed and the uncertainty is removed because these are things that create fear that people don't want and if you say to somebody you've removed the fear of uncertainty it's appealing to them and so we sort of come to this place where um, we we're overly reliant on recipes and I'm not saying you, you know I often think I come across as I say that you know recipes are terrible and rubbish and nobody should ever use them and that is definitely not what I'm saying I create recipes I write recipes I share recipes recipes are great recipe books are great I have loads and loads of them I love looking at them for inspiration I love making specific dishes specific recipes but 90% of the food that I cook isn't that way because the way that we live our lives isn't I look in books I make a shopping list for every recipe that I'm going to cook for the whole week I buy those ingredients I follow the recipes and if that is how we cook it's not fun like it's fun to do it when you want a specific recipe for a specific outcome for a specific event great but when you're making dinner in half an hour at home with what's in the fridge a recipe is is a massive source of stress. Do you have the right ingredients? What if you um, don't have something and you don't know until the end? Do you have to go out and buy something? Will it be enough? Will it turn out right? What if it doesn't look like the picture? And these all create barriers to connecting to your food and to having that relationship, which for me is, is the absolute joy of cooking, is working with your senses, being mindful, engaging with what you're doing and trusting that as long as you don't overcomplicate things. And this is the other thing is like recipes are great when you want to do something that's a little bit more technical or from a specific cuisine or whatever it might be. But again, everyday home cooking should be simple. It should be quick. It should be accessible, but it should still be delicious. Like I, I firmly believe that what we need to first of all do is make it non-negotiable that everything that we put in our mouth is tasty and make, lights us up in some way. It doesn't have to be nutritious. It doesn't have to be soul-filling every mouthful. It has to give you something, whether it's going to satisfy you, whether it's going to give you the nourishment that you need, whether it's going to like make you feel better because you've had a hard day. Those are all valid things, and that should be the priority when we're eating. And furthermore, that we should enjoy the process that gets it into our mouths, whether it's ordering a takeaway and not feeling guilty about it, whether it's letting somebody else cook for us and not feeling guilty about it, or whether it's taking time out to engage with what we're doing and slow down and cook and see it as a part of our self-care rather than a chore or a necessary evil. 
And all of these things start to reorientate the way that you see food and your relationship with food and how you connect to food and kind of give you this slightly more joyful, life-affirming and positive relationship with food rather than one that is surrounded by negative stories. And so I do a lot of practical work. I also do a lot of mindset work. And that's what my book is about because so much of the barriers that we have to enjoying food are in our mind. Um, we all have the capability to cook basic things, to choose and combine ingredients, to go shopping and let our senses guide us. But we are convinced that it's all going to go wrong or that we don't have time or that we've got more important things to do or that if we don't follow a recipe, it's not going to be very nice and we're not going to enjoy it. And all of these things then create barriers that stop us wanting to cook or stop us enjoying cooking, stop us treating ourselves to things when we need them or want them. And for me, like, like that's like life is not about that. <laughs> like for me, because food is such a big part of my life. Like I, I can't, I kind of can't allow that to happen in the world. Like there is so much joy to be had from our relationship with food, you know, for everyone at any point, you know, if you have access to food, that's fresh, that's enough. It doesn't have to be the most expensive, the fanciest, you know, having access to decent, fresh food, there's a lot of joy to be had there. And, you know, for me, it, there is so much of it is positive that I really just, you know, it's really important to me that I get that out there as much as possible because it's, it's like the single greatest source of joy and self-care and connection to something bigger than myself that I have in my life. And it's the thing that's got me from living a life that I hated to living a life that I love. Um, and it's kind of, set me on this path and on this mission um and that's why I'm kind of here doing what I'm doing now Sal I think I just went on my own intuitive eating journey with you while you were just while you were just talking I saw like as you were explaining all of that I was thinking about like my own relationship with food and about how I think it was about how I was like my how I was brought up when it came to food, which was, I think, in a really positive, wonderful way and how my mom was like that about so many of the things that you said of like, not like what I, what I thought intuitive eating was when we came into this, which I think it is in like the diet zeitgeist is about, you know, it's a, it's um, a type of diet that, or a type of, you know, way of like, okay, well, I'm not really hungry, so I'm not going to eat this thing. Or, you know what, I actually really want to eat like a whole lot of pasta right now. So I'm going to do that, but I'm going to just like, you, it's really about like feeling how your body feels and not like forcing you to do one thing or another, which I think is a lot of stuff you were saying. But I think what, what you were also saying, which really just really resonated is about like, um, you know, pulling away the expectations that the world has put on us when it comes to food and that we put on ourselves when it comes to food. And I have had so many conversations with other women who are just terrified of cooking and they, it seems so stressful to them. And I just, I have not been able to wrap my mind around it. Like I just come from such a different perspective and hearing you explain kind of why people might have all these like hangups around cooking and eating and stuff. It, um, it, it just, it broke me out of that for a minute. Like, oh, wow. Yeah, no, that's this, like, this is not a, always a relaxing, wonderful thing um, for a lot of people. I am notoriously, I never use a recipe. 
Um, and it's not a little bit because I get mad at them. I'm like, who are you to tell me how much I have to put of something in there? You know, like what, what, what the heck even is like three tablespoons of garlic or something? I don't know. I'm not going to measure it out. Um, so I get a little bit like, you know, like, uh, um, anti-establishment on, on recipes, but also I never have all the items that I need in a recipe and I have other things. So like, if you see a recipe that calls for five items, like I'll have substituted four of them. And so it's a whole new thing now. And I get great joy out of that. And I feel I'm a little bit like waxing poetic now about, about cooking and stuff. But, um, if I, if, if there is something that I can make that I ne- don't have to leave my house to go get an ingredient, that is like such a fun win for me. And you had mentioned before about talking about stories around the food and stuff like that to me is like the story of my day, you know, like, oh, wow, I like had this idea for this type of thing. And I realized they had all this stuff. And oh, my gosh, I could make this. And then the product now at the end of the day is like the end of my of my day journey. You know, it's a little bit of the, of the story of the stuff that I had in my house, how I was feeling that day was what was the weather like? What was my mood like? And all of that is a representation of it. Um, and we used to you know, have a joke in my house that my mom could make something out of nothing because we would really have no, nothing in the house, nothing in the fridge, in the pantry, and she would make a dinner and she would make something great. Um, and it really was about removing those expectations that no, it might, it's not going to be something that's going to be on the cover of Bon Appetit magazine. Um, it's not, you know, it's not going to be this specifically delicious. Um, I mean, it was delicious, but it wasn't going to be like, oh, this is how this meal should always taste every single time. Another joke, and I say it to myself too, is like, I'll make something once and I'll never be able to make it again because who exactly. knows what was in that and who knows how much of that one thing was in there. So I just, I think um, I, I really resonated a lot with that. And I think that removing all those expectations can bring such a joy to this um, and, and, and so much less stress um, and all kinds of like, you know, a, a creativity. I feel like this is the only way I get to be creative. So what, how do we tap into that? How do we tap into our intuition when it comes to food and begin listening to that and start to remove these barriers that have been put on us? Yeah, so I'm really glad that you asked that because um, I wanted to say um, one other thing about the intuitive eating because you completely hit on that and, and it, it's a really good sort of segue into talking about tapping into your intuition, which is that the thing about intuitive eating, it's, and it's not, I'm not trashing it because it's a wonderful thing and it's doing so much for eating disorder recovery and it's such a great philosophy and there's so much amazing work being done to really change the way that we treat and think about eating disorders but a lot of the work that I do isn't necessarily aimed at those extremes and so I'm trying to sort of get get people like you or like your friends who kind of think like their relationship with food is okay and then they start to examine areas where they have these negative stories that do affect it and see that there's more joy to be out there and for me it's and I say this in my book as well like intuitive eating is just it's slightly minimizing because everything in your life can be intuitive to a degree and the more you connect your intuition in one regard in life the more it starts to be useful and apparent in other regards you know it it kind of seeps into other areas of your life and so for me the combination of intuition and food came with me working on other areas of my life because my relationship with food was pretty intuitive but I kind of just didn't have all of the pieces that I needed to put together to realize what it was. And it's, for me, it's more about a lifelong journey about letting your intuition be more 
vocal and have more sway than just your logical and your rational brain. And I'm not saying you shouldn't use your brain and logic and reason be damned. I'm saying you need to let both of those things have a say and let both of those things weigh in because we spend so much time from work to family to food. Everything is is very logic and reason driven. It's very driven by the external things and not just when it comes to food, but when it comes to our career or how we prioritize our time or what we do for our uh, job or with our family, like all of those things are fighting against you saying you should do this and you should do that and you should prioritize this. And, and what you start to do is you start to think things through and overthink things and let every logical step be played out and live in that front part of your brain that is great at, you know, being rational and stopping you from jumping off cliffs and stuff like that. But is the thing that holds you back when it comes to taking risks or doing things that involve uncertainty or facing your fears or going out of your comfort zone, um, you need to have a gut feeling that tells you that it's the right thing to do to get you over that line. And you know, for me, doing what I do now was all about becoming more intuitive and just letting my turning off the you should have a business that does this and you should do this with your degree and you should go and, um, you know, open a cafe or be this kind of chef and saying, what in my gut do I want to do with my life? And how can my logical brain make that happen? And that's kind of what everything is about, whether it's food, whether it's eating, whether it's cooking. It's about leading with your gut and letting your brain execute, I guess, rather than letting your brain do everything and losing out on that. Not only the intuitive gut feel, which is often way more instructive and right, um, and also missing out on the joy, because the things that intuitively feel great, the whole journey is joyful and the outcome is joyful because from the get go, it feels good. And so it kind of can't go wrong in that sense. Um, and for me, using food is a great way to connect to your intuition. And that's kind of how I brought these things together is for me, our connection to food is the most tangible way that we connect to something greater than ourselves. Like it is impossible not to feel like there is something amazing going on in the world when you look at all of the food that just grows naturally in the ground and the way that we cultivate it and process it and turn it into these amazing things. And it's not just sustenance, it's not just fuel, it's celebration, it's connection, it's feasting, it's love, it's showing emotion, it's feeling good, it's changing your mood, it's nourishing you, it's made, giving you all of those things, mind, body and soul that you need to do like whatever incredible, awesome things you want to do in your life. And if you can sort of tap into that connection to food, it immediately becomes something greater than yourself. And it's so sensory and so engaging and it's so easy to get lost in the smells and the tastes and the memories and the stories. And it's so gut based, like, you know, when food hits your senses, it goes straight to your gut. It doesn't, your brain's not involved. It's your nose, it's your mouth, it's your stomach, it's your body that reacts to food. And so it's a really, really good way to start to let your physical sensations and your gut feelings 
start to weigh into your decisions. And it's, you know, it's not like deciding to leave and quit your job and move to the other side of the world. It's actually quite a safe space in which to start to explore your connection to that and start to explore how you let your gut feelings, you know, become more vocal and become more powerful. And it gives you the confidence that they work because you make something delicious. You don't follow a recipe. You follow your gut. You follow your heart. Comes out great. And you've like reprogrammed a little bit of your mind to trust your intuition a little bit more. And for me, this kind of self-reinforcing relationship between food and intuition, even now, is how I am still, I mean, because it's it's definitely a journey and there's never... Um, it doesn't feel like there's ever an end point and I'm just sort of constantly developing and, and trying to become more self-aware. Um, for me, that's how I kind of get back to feeling more intuitive. And if I'm ever feeling out of kilter or like I don't know, you know, if I'm not feeling like I'm able to make decisions or flow or whatever it might be, my my sort of solutions are walk my dogs, do some exercise or cook something. Um, and sometimes if I'm like overwhelmed, I'll just put everything aside and just spend some time in the kitchen cooking because it's my happy place. And I think given that food is such an important part of our lives and whether you like it or not, we have a relationship with it and all relationships take work and all relationships have their ups and downs. Um, we're never going to be rid of it. And so we need to find a way to live with it, but we need to find a way for it to be more than just something we tolerate. It needs to be life affirming and it should be because it has the capacity to bring up so much more than sometimes we let it because of those external sort of should mentalities that we start to lose our connection to our intuition in every way. And your, your food is the easiest way to start letting your gut get back in the game. Um, and I think it has a really powerful effect in other areas of your life. If you start to, sort of really change your mindset when it comes to food because everything that I teach about food mindset you could just change food for career for family for anything it's you know those things are universally applicable and useful and and your brain works in such a wonderful way that you can kind of program one area and, and have it spill over into another I think that is such a great thought about having um like starting with food and, and I know so many people who don't have a good relationship for, with food and they, um, you know, I'll use my own mother for an example. I don't think she would eat if like, it wasn't absolutely like a necessary function of her body. Um, and I think that spills over, like you're saying into other aspects of life, whereas you lose this connection with something that your body needs and, and enjoys and, um, you lose those connections. I don't believe you can truly love yourself unless you have a great relationship with food. And I don't, you know, I really want to make clear, I don't mean you only eat healthy food. I mean, you don't have a fear-based, scarcity-based, restrictive, miserable relationship with food. You have one that's life-affirming. And, um, you know, for me, I sort of teach it from the other angle, which is use your relationship with food to change your relationship with yourself um, because that's kind of how I got to it. That's how I realized all of these things about abundance, about intuition, about embracing uncertainty in relation to food. I get it. And that's how I've been able to kind of start to work to make those things 
more apparent in other areas of my life. Now, I'm curious, um, you, like you've mentioned, you teach this um, in classes. And, you know, I'm talking about my mother and Sandy and I are women. This is a podcast about women and their relationship with food. Um, In your classes, do you find that it's mostly women? Um, Do you find that your followership is mostly women? Have you noted any like differences in the relationship, you know, kind of um, generalizing, of course, but the relationship that women have with food versus men with food? Are they seeking out this kind of um, classes more often? So... I think there are two aspects there um, that are very important and and definitely relevant to women. And it's it's definitely true. Most of my customers, whether it's um, sort of catering, workshops, courses, coaching, all of those things, the majority of them are women and the majority of them are in the age group of 30 to 65. And... The, the major driver for me with it being women is that whether we like it or not, food is still seen as more of a female thing in the home place. Not in, not in professional circumstances. It's a very male-dominated industry, but it's, it's kind of seen like a womanly thing in family situations. And diet culture, at least up until recently, is almost exclusively directed at women and it affects women disproportionately more. Body image, all of those things. And I'm not saying it doesn't affect men and it is affecting men more and more because it's becoming more directed at both genders. But throughout history, changing your body to fit an ideal has been the job of the woman to do. Um, And it's been the things that have been put on all of us in the media and, you know, through diet culture and, and through sub unconscious things that our family and friends say, um, it affects women much, much more. It's just more directed at women. And so uh, I think women are more negatively affected by their relationship with food because of all of these external factors. And when you have a relationship with food that is fear-based and you see it as a battleground and you struggle to fit with the ideals and restrictions that are put on you externally, it becomes really, really miserable and really, really joyless. And so it definitely affects women more. I think the other thing that I'm noticing, and it's it's so amazing that this has happened at this time because I've never really been able to piece together how my background and my heritage and my culture and my relationship with food kind of have brought me to where I am now because I don't I'm not a a sort of ethnic chef right I don't only cook food from the place where my family is from because that's not how I grew up but I did grow up with a food culture that is very much from that place so my family's from East Africa Um, I love that sort of, particularly at the moment, and I've always hated that question of where are you from? Because I don't, like I'm British and I'm brown, but I don't feel Indian or African. My family is from East Africa, but ethnically we're Indian. And I'm just like, why are you asking me this question? I've got an English accent and I've got brown skin. Isn't that enough? And so it's been really difficult for me to see how those things all come together. And all of this work that's going on at the moment and all of these people that I'm connecting with and hearing from and listening to with all of this idea about sort of food culture and intuitive relationships with food from 
you know, Africa, India, wherever it might be. What I've started to realize is a lot of what I have to offer is derived from my cultural relationship with food and how I was brought up um, in terms of cooking and ingredients and the way we connected with food and the way food was talked about and approached and all of those things. And that's not to say that it was because we only ate East African food. It was quite the opposite. Like I grew up in London. I was born in London. My grandma is from Zanzibar and it's a disaster if she cooks anything that isn't from Zanzibar. So we try and make her only cook uh, East African food. And my mum is quite organized and really loves food as well and a great cook. Um, and she really loves like Mediterranean and Middle Eastern food. And also just really simple sort of, you know, she was definitely a meat and two veg kind of person at some points as well. She makes a great roast dinner and she really embraced a lot of things that, you know, I mean, a roast is like as English as you get. And she definitely makes the best roast that I've ever eaten. Um, and it's even better than mine. And I'm a, I'm a professional chef. But, um, but, you know, we grew up eating all sorts of different food. My aunt married a German American and lives in California. And I spent countless summers you know, eating incredible Vietnamese food and Chinese food and, you know, all sorts of food in California, Mexican food, uh, American food. And my other aunt married a half Iranian, half uh, Italian guy. So we grew up, you know, I grew up making Roman lasagna every year when I was a kid and eating Persian food. But all of those different cultures all have one thing in common which is that food is at the heart of family and cultural tradition it's very much a sort of family um secret kind of we're the best at cooking and our food is the best kind of vibe and so I was grew up with such a reverence for food um but possibly not so much of a reverence for it as a profession which was kind of the journey that I've been on trying to shake off my management consultant roots and become a chef um but the truth is is that so much of what I teach and so many of my stories and so many of the important things about how we connect to food and cooking come from the way my grandma cooks or the way my mum taught me to cook or the things I used to eat or make with my uncle when we were little and it's not from one cuisine or from one culture you know I grew up in London and I love food and Wherever I, you know, in the before times, before coronavirus, if I was traveling, it was always about the food. Like, where do I want to eat? What cuisine haven't I tried? Where do I want to go and find somebody to teach me how to cook the local food? And so all of those things are kind of so wrapped up in my entire sort of being and everything from family to, you know, culture and all of that. And I think I... I end up with people that have sort of not necessarily had the same cultural connection to food, whether it's through where they grew up or their gender or, you know, their family background, whatever it might be. But often I find that it's that connection to food that is missing. And it, you know, that affects men and women as well. But again, because at home, food is usually the responsibility of the woman still. Um, it just ends up being a lot more women that, that come my way. So that was a really long-winded answer to it. It could have just been a yes, it's women. <laughs> um, we have found similar similar kinds of answers when we've asked other 
uh, other guests, you know, if they're, whether they're a, a teacher or they have a class or, you know, they um, do something that engages the public, you know, what, what is the breakdown? And it does, it seems like more women come to this type of topic and maybe, I don't know, maybe there is something innate in us and that's something that Hope and I have endeavored on the podcast to really try to figure out, like, is, you know, we think there's a unique relationship between women and food, um, but what is it, you know, is it there? Um, and what, what is, what does it look like? And so maybe it's because of these, the patriarchy that we've been living in forever, where it's just women have been relegated to a food realm, or maybe there is something more in depth. I don't know. If I can talk about magic for a minute. Um, Please do. This is, kind of, this is kind of what's at the heart of it. So I think the patriarchal fear-based mindset has, has turned cooking into one of two things. It's into a, a male dominated commercial thing, which is about, um, TV personalities and Michelin stars and, you know, books and recipes and the things that sell and that are, you know, globalized and and very easy to commercialize. And, you know, from elite food to diet culture, you know, anything that touches on our relationship with food that is commercial. And unfortunately, most things are that are commercial, are capitalist and are driven by the patriarchy, end up being things that prey on a fear-based mindset, that prey on scarcity, that get you at the things that make you worry about your life and give you a solution and you hand over your credit card and it's happy days. Or things that you're told you should want or should have because they're a mark of success or a mark of achievement. All of these external things we've been talking about um, that's kind of where a lot of that comes from. And then there's this sort of other view, which is that food is, you know, for women to cook for their families and that's it. But actually, I think, you know, if we think about women who are intuit- more intuitive beings because we haven't created the patriarchal fear-based mindset necessarily and witches and intuition and those things have been quashed by it, it's because we are more intuitive naturally, it's because we are witches, if we want to be, that it is easier for us to access that connection to food. That's what I believe anyway. And it's easier for us to examine that connection to food, I guess, and to want to have that connection to food and to want those things that are intuitive to be a positive part of our lives. So there is something innate about just of what it means to be a woman and maybe having a more of a um, proclivity to be in touch with that intuition and to think about it more so that there is. Nobody says my granddad makes the best anything. Like it's always your grandma. It's always your mom. And there's a reason for that. Um, And again, it's because we allow ourselves to be emotional and intuitive. And like, it's not about impressing people and showing off when we cook. It's about loving the people um, that we're cooking for, or loving ourselves with the food and loving the food. It's not, there's no like agenda. Um, it's about love. It's about joy. It's about something positive. And, and if we don't have that, I think we, we maybe yearn for that and end up trying to find a way to access it. I know I personally come at at cooking in just what you said of, you know, ne- like not plating anything to look nice or trying to say, wow, you know, look at all my amazing skills. Like, I actually don't even know if I am that great of a cook. I just know that I love it a lot. And that comes through a lot. 
And as sometimes as um, much like anger I can get because, oh, this whole thing failed and my, you know, it didn't come out how I want it to be. I can get just as much joy from, oh my gosh, this came out exactly how I wanted it to, or it came out completely different and it's amazing. Um, and those, those joys and being able to share them um, with people. And um, it's, it's almost never about, wow, come look at my, you know, how amazing my food is. It's about come hang out with me and share with me and let me do this, this thing for you. Um, but what, what comes up a lot for, and I think about this for myself, um, you know, it feels like, even though it does feel, yes, this is what, this is what makes me feel good. This is, the, you know, trying to tap in, I think, to my intuition of like, what feels right to, to make today and to how to, and how that reflects about how I'm being today. And, you know, my story of my day and t- told through food, um, that I get to make those choices. You know, I get to say that I can go, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to go buy this one ingredient or I'm going to go to the farmer's market or I'm going to, you know, I'm going to use up all this stuff in the fridge or I'm going to, you know what my, you know, my significant other would like love this type of food and I want to make it for them. Um, I still get to make that choice and I get to express my intuition through the food, but that's not true for everyone. Not everyone is able to access those things that maybe would be the full expression of their intuition that day or that moment um, or for, you know, uh, in a situation. So could you speak a little bit to some of the equity thinking about this? Like, you know, what if this, you know, all this stuff can't, doesn't seem like, and maybe you can tell me I'm wrong, doesn't seem like it could apply to everyone across the board. Yeah. I mean, I think, I think it, it, again, this is, it's so hard to unpick where sort of the, the external issues and forces stop and and our own thinking begins because so many of our our views and our our thinking is so co-opted by external forces but I think you know we have to think about what our relationship with food really means and what having an intuitive relationship with food means and you know yes if you're more privileged and you have more access to things it's definitely more easy to make those decisions um but a lot of you know if you think back to sort of why food culture exists in the way that it does in a lot of countries it's it's because of it's because of hardship it's because of connection it's because it was the way to sort of stay connected and have something meaningful um, when other things were, um, you know, out of your control. And some of the most, you know, if we take it, you think about it from an economic point of view, some of the most delicious, comforting things that I eat when I call them to mind are probably the cheapest things that required in fact, no, very few fresh ingredients because they're things that are comforting that I grew up eating. And I think it's about forming your own connection to food in the world that you live in and finding the ways to make those things joyful, whether it's, you know, and for me, it's it's really important to, to remember that it's not about eating the best food, the freshest food, the healthiest food all the time. It's about not feeling crappy about your food choices because other people or other things outside are telling you that they're wrong or they're unhealthy or that that for whatever reason you shouldn't be making them um and forging your own connection to food and i completely understand that you know there are some people that don't have access to those things um but then there are also really strong movements going on to to try and share that 
joy and that connection that is so important and so basic because um, so one of the charities that I support, I, I support charities from the revenue from my Zoom classes. And one of the charities that I support is a local food waste charity. And they, in their entire business model, managed to do a whole bunch of things that solve massive problems with our food system uh, in the UK, which is they take waste food that is perfectly good, but has gone out of date by one day or goes out of date tomorrow can't be sold for whatever reason, is surplus, is rejected, perfectly good food. And not only do they give that to the community, but every week, at least before the pandemic, and I'm sure they'll start again, they make a community meal, they get volunteers to come and make intuitive meals. And that's the thing, because when we go and we cook, we have no idea what we're going to get. We get given 50 kilos of random food, and we have to make a three course meal out of it. But we're there to feed 50 people who are completely on their own and would otherwise not share a meal with anybody for the entire week. And we get to chat to people, they get to chat to people, they get to to chat to people over a meal, which is one of the most equalizing things possible. Um, And we save a whole bunch of food that is perfectly good that would otherwise have gone to waste. And I think, you know, simple things like sharing a meal it is a way to have a more intuitive experience when you eat or eating mindfully or, you know, not having a guilt mindset when it comes to what you eat. And if you don't have the tools to change the physical um, sort of makeup of what you're eating because of your geography or your financial makeup, then um, a lot of it is about your mindset and the way that you don't let other people and external forces define you. You know, in one of our favorite meals and the most comforting thing, and my family have always been, you know, pretty well off. We're super privileged. I'm super lucky. But the mo- the thing we most love to eat is the rice and lentil porridge with chickpea flour soup. And it's like four ingredients that you could have in your cupboard and you wouldn't even know for six years and make a delicious meal out of them. And it costs, you know, 3p a head. And for all of us, that is like, the most comforting and most delicious thing in the world. But we often feel like if we're not eating kale smoothies and Michelin food and, you know, whatever the latest in vogue vegetable is, that somehow we're inferior or we don't have a good relationship with food. Um, Yet so much food culture is born out of poverty, of war, of oppression, of restriction of ingredients, of lack of access to food. And it's more about that connection to food than it is necessarily what you have. And obviously, you know, there are lots of people that have no access to food. And, you know, like some of the people I've talked about, even here, there are people that are in food poverty. And I think separately, and it's one of the things that I make an effort to do because I'm aware of my privilege in that regard. And and a lot of my clients as well is try and give back and support the, the people that don't have access fundamentally to the things that I'm talking about because I do also firmly believe that there is no room for anyone not to be going hungry on this planet at the moment and so I think you know it's about balancing those two things but I don't you know it's there is a problem with a with our relationship with food in the west and just because there are other problems with food in the world I don't think that that problem doesn't need to be sorted. I just think we have to fix all the problems and 
in whatever way I can do one or do the other, I'm going to try and do do as much as I can. <laughs> we just got to fix all the problems. <laughs> uh, I've been doing some work um, recently since everything has shut down because of um, COVID-19. And I've been working with um, food pantries in my, um, in my area and helping them to get some of the things that they need. They've, you know, saw a huge increase in, um, in clientele, you know, within the past couple of months, things are kind of leveling off now as some more things are opening up, people are going back to work, there was unemployment um, that was able to be accessed, things like that. Um, and it's been really um, uh, great to work really closely. I hadn't worked as closely with some with food pantries in the way that I have recently. And, and just seeing how it whether I don't even know if some people are doing this consciously or not, but like for the folks that are trying to, and they, they care so much about wanting to make sure that all these people are fed, you know, as we all do, and they are working right on the ground to do it. Um, they're, they have such a focus on, well, how do we get them the things that they want and the things that would make them, you know, feel good or be able to, in some way, um, express that, you know, that intuition of what they want to eat. And so it's, it's not just about, okay, how can we get the, you know, most generic calories in the mm-hmm. most generic color just to get people, you know, calories to eat, which really at the, at the baseline, you know, that is what a food pantry wants to do is be able to get food, get food to people who don't have it. But it, but these people that are running them make it so much more than that. You know, they want to be able to get like high quality, types of foods or like a brand that's familiar and comforting or, you know, a diversity of stuff. So it's not just the same thing every week. Um, and, and so many more examples, but um, really just the, the people that are executing these have, 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 are trying to get to the goal, I think of, of what you're saying of giving people a little more autonomy over the things that they, that they choose. Um, so they don't just have to say, oh, well, you know, I just have to eat this, you know, a government issued surplus or something, you know, which I think, um, unfortunately, a lot of emergency food has gotten a, a bad rap about that. Um, so how can um, how can the people that are, are working at the food pantries really make it just that that everyone has that same ability to to have choice and to have some autonomy over the things that they're eating? Exactly. And I think, you know, with, you know, in your situation, it, it sounds like it's definitely sort of the inspiration of the people that are doing the work. And, and certainly in the charities that I work with here, it's it's a mixture of not only people, but, you know, really smart thinking around how to make use of the obvious massive flaws in the food system that we have and turn them into something that is not not just let's give the food that nobody wants to poor people, but let's bring these people out of this mindset where they're getting handouts of whatever they're given and that's good enough for you, but bringing you joy with the food that you're getting to, because actually food is so important and so powerful and being miserable about what you eat makes you miserable about other things in your life. And if you have a great meal or you have a great time cooking, where you just have something to eat that is just perfect for that moment. It gives you so much more than the sustenance and the calories that give you energy that by denying that to people through charity, you're actually doing them a disservice. So I think it's so great to have people that have that in mind and understand how important that is, working at the ground to do that. And yeah, it's really, really inspiring. And, you know, some of the ways that people have... um, sort of made a model to deal with food waste and deal with food poverty and deal with um food isolation as well um is really great and when the 
when the pandemic first started, I was really, you know, all of my work got cancelled and I had a, you know, had a few weeks of being really miserable and a few weeks of, you know, not really knowing what to do. And I started volunteering with some of the local um, charities that deliver food and stuff like that. And, you know, it's people are excited. It doesn't, it's not like, oh, I'm getting a handout. It's like, what have I got? And it's the same as when you go to the supermarket or you get a takeaway. Like we all have that childlike what have I got? What's for dinner? Oh, I'm excited. Feeling somewhere in us when it comes to food. Um, and I don't think anybody should be denied that if we can avoid it. So if we can make it more than just sustenance at every level, um, I think we're doing people a good service. So you've recently released a book um, called The 10 Steps to a More Joyful Relationship with Food, which um, I'm assuming is about what we've been talking about, about the intuitive relationship with food and how others can do that if they maybe can't join you in a class. Do you want to talk a little bit about your book? Yeah, sure. So it's it's quite, kind of like a, a short foray into this intersection between self-development and our relationship with food. And it's kind of the beginning of what is now sort of a much more sort of burgeoning thinking and philosophy that I'm I'm honing in on about it. But essentially, it kind of combines a number of things um, which I think are really important and for me, kind of define our relationship with food. And it's about trying to explain what it means to have a relationship with food and all of the aspects of our life that that touches on and to try and actually convince people that it's something worth working on and worth having a joyful relationship with food. Because I think a lot of these books... And again, I'm not saying that they're bad. I'm just saying that they're they're often very directed at people with eating disorders or specific issues with food. And they're also often very long and they're also often written by nutritionists. And, um, you know, some of the nutritionists that are writing about intuitive eating now are very open about the fact that nutritionists are some of the worst affected by eating disorders because the more you sort of learn about nutrition and anatomy and biology and all of the different scientific thinking and argument about food from a nutrition perspective, you lose sight of the other things. And for me, the nutrition aspect is, is not even just body. It's only a little bit of body. And then you've got mind, body and soul as the sort of holistic view of your well-being. And a nutritional view of food is just one little bit of the body aspect and a little bit maybe of the mind aspect but but actually from a less conscious perspective and we don't then embrace the soul and emotion and you know that spiritual connection that we have to food that is as contributory to our well-being as the physical sort of nutritional aspect of our relationship with food and so it's really trying to sort of bring that to people that you know you know like a few of the people that you sort of referred to here that you know struggle with cooking just have this sort of like drudgery not particularly bad but not particularly good relationship with food because you know as I've said a a number of times and it's kind of my mantra at the moment like everything we eat should be delicious it should give us something it should satisfy us somehow and it's really about trying to get people into the mindset where, yeah, sure, it might be a Kit Kat or it might be a takeaway or it might be a kale smoothie, but you should want to eat it. And, 
you should it should you know it should be something positive it should be something more than just a have to or a should um and it's about looking at our relationship with food from a more rounded perspective in terms of so there's a whole chapter on movement for example because i think we often forget about how food and movement are basically two sides of the same coin like we put the food in we do things with our body it uses up all the food food goes back in we do things with our body and what we do with our body affects what we need to put into it and by removing that connection to our intuition to our body we stop giving our body what it needs at the right time and we just give it what we think it should have because of diet culture or because of time or because we feel like we should spend that extra hour working instead of cooking for ourselves um and it's about just trying to explain why your life is better if you don't do that way and you you think of your relationship with food as something that's fluid and evolving and requires work and that should be intuitive and you kind of focus on on getting that intuitive connection to food through cooking but also through your mindset there's so much of it is just about how you think about food or speak about food or you know talk about food to other people it's so meaningful in terms of your kind of subconscious programming Uh, and I think it's it's just trying to bring that all together in a way that is I try to make it kind of light and not overly it's you know I'm not a nutritionist and I am deliberately not a nutritionist I thought about studying nutrition I just thought actually the thing that is unique about me is that I don't focus on that aspect of food and I have a great relationship with food agnostic of nutrition because the truth is nutrition is a tiny has been around for a tiny tiny part of the existence of humans yet we've always fed ourselves and what we've eaten and how we've cooked and how we've cultivated has changed so much over that time and we are here we have evolved we are vital we are the most powerful dominant ruining the planet creatures around and you know yet it's like suddenly well now nutrition is going to decide everything when for thousands of years we've been doing just fine without it because it's intuitive and it's natural and it's about nature and it's about connection to something else um and it's just about trying to get people into that mindset in a way that isn't full of sort of dogma and essentially diet culture and it's kind of more about why i love food and how easy it is to love food if you change your mindset and there's some really nice pictures in there from a friend of mine that he drew um which are really cute and it's not very long which i think you know often i'll pick up a book about about our relationship with food or nutrition and it's like 300 pages long and it's like just give me give me the cliff notes you know what i mean yeah what what i hear and i'll go out on a limb and you can tell me if i'm right or wrong on this but like is that it's not that any of this intuitive eating is just a, a scapegoat or a, um, you know, a, a, a free license to just eat whatever you want, really, when you want. Like, oh, sweet, I, I'm intuitive eating, so I'm just going to, like, you know, eat a box mac and cheese for breakfast, lunch, and dinner um, for five days a week. And, you know, maybe that is where you are that week, but it's it's maybe taking a more deeper listening and, and that things will balance out. Like, 
of, you know, if because not being so hyper focused on nutrition or hyper focused on a certain type of diet or something, then you get that more flexibility to say, yeah, you know, some days or some moments I'm going to eat like this, but then it's going to balance out because other moments I'm going to really listen into what my body wants on, you know, on these other times. Is that is that sort of correct? Yeah, exactly. I mean, it's about it's about doing that in sort of everything. But when it comes to food, exactly. It's about not it's about not um, not seeing it as sort of binary, um, good or bad, moral value. It's it's certainly not about judging your decisions based on those values. And it is about, you know, because for me, eating intuitively, really, like, say you really fancy that Big Mac or whatever. Um, it's been a while since I had one, but I'm pretty sure that if I went and ate a Big Mac and I really enjoyed it, fine. I would say I wanted another one straight after and I ate that second Big Mac. At some point that day or the next day, if I let myself connect to my body, my body will give me a signal about whether that was too much or too little Big Mac and whether I want more Big Mac today or not and whether I want something else. And for me, it's funny that you say that because eating meat is one that it kind of really kick-started my connection to that. And um, I stopped eating. I, I didn't, I, my journey with vegetarianism is a long part of this book because I now no longer call myself a vegetarian, even though I basically don't eat meat. But again, it's about mindset and about not restricting yourself because the moment I decided to stop eating meat, I was like, I crave cheeseburgers every day. And now that I allow myself to eat meat, if I want to, I basically don't really want to. And the reason behind that is because, so for a long time, I ate meat, not very often, really great quality meat, or would I go out for dinner? It wasn't really something that was on my radar. And then at the time that I started working with my coach and doing just general self-development work and trying to kind of connect to my intuition outside of the kitchen... Um, I went to this restaurant, I had a burger and the next day I suddenly was like, I can't cope with the physical sensations that I'm having. And I realized that it was no different to how I felt every other time I'd eaten meat. I just suddenly was so much more aware and I was listening to my body more and I wasn't just going through life, just doing things on autopilot. My body was suddenly like, no, this is not good. And I basically just stopped eating meat. And then within a few weeks, I was like, this, I feel amazing. And like not eating meat is great. And then I went to a wedding in New York. And I was like, I really want to eat that barbecue. And then I did. And, you know, it's like, knowing that your body gives you those signals and listening to them. And so I've gone on this whole journey of eating and not eating meat, trying to figure out like, how to balance that like mindset thing about like not restricting my diet because it makes me want to eat the thing I say is off limits, but also doing the thing that intuitively feels right from an ethical perspective and also from a kind of interoceptive perspective, how my body feels. And all of that, and like I had to like throw away, I'm going to be a vegetarian, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do it. It's like literally every day, every decision that I make around food isn't I'm a vegetarian or I don't eat this or it's after this time so I won't have this. It's like, what does my body say? Does it say yes? Does it say no? End of story. Um, but it's 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 not, it's so hard to just, you can't just switch it on, right? So I started working with my coach at the end of 2018. So most of 2019. Is that true? No. 
the beginning of 2018 sort of through to the mid of 2019 um, was sort of when we were working together intensively. And that was a time when all of this stuff started kicking in, um, not because it wasn't already there and my body wasn't already telling me, but because I started to listen more. And it took me like a year to even become like marginally more intuitive because I'm like, you know, another story for another podcast, but you know, I have a lot of like issues around my relationship with myself and how I see my career and all of this stuff that I had to unpick and, you know, things about my upbringing and all of this stuff. And as soon as I started to be more intuitive in life, like, I thought I had this really great, really intuitive relationship with you. And my body was like, no, you've just been ignoring me for ages. Here's your intuition telling you to do this. Um, and, you know, another year later, those things change from day to day. And it's about giving yourself the kind of power to make those choices day to day and not kind of restrict yourself arbitrarily. Because actually, like sometimes... I just really do fancy a cheeseburger, but most of the time I don't. Um, but you have to work with your body and you have to make those mistakes as well because you learn more from mistakes than you do from doing everything right. That that day where you eat too much cake is the day that you learn your limit. Um, and that's much more instructive than just arbitrarily only eating a predefined amount of cake when you might want more or you might want less. Right. Or that day when you realize you put way too much salt in um, the soup and <laughs> it's inedible and you realize you don't do that again. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. And I always sort of say, you know, whether I'm in my classes or, or kind of working one to one with people is is those things that, you know, and, and so it's two things. Like One, you have to let go of those expectations because nobody like taste is so subjective like the person measures this and tastes this and says adjust this to taste and season to taste like that's so totally subjective and so you kind of have this battle between like oh this it should be like this but then you're in control of how it tastes and I think it's you know it's that kind of um that feedback that you get from not being told what to do and then trying to figure out how that relates to you subjectively, but just doing it from a subjective perspective. And then you get the feedback. And like, um, I have this great story that I always tell people about seasoning and spicing and stuff, which is this angry dal that I made. So I have this dal recipe and it has the same ingredients every time I make dal, but obviously I never measure anything. And also like you toast the spices, you put chili in, there's a lot of layers of flavor going in. And it is often quite reflective of my mood. And one day I, I've been craving dal and I started making it and then loads of things went wrong in the day and I didn't have time to make it. I was like, I'm making this dal if it kills me. And I was in such a bad mood. I made this dal and it was like that angriest dal anyone had ever eaten. So it was like so spicy and so much pepper and so much chili. Um, but, you know, that's kind of you know, I learn, I learn if I'm angry, maybe I shouldn't make dal. Um, these are the things that are so much more, the feedback loop is so much more intuitive. Like if you taste something or you smell something and you engage with it, 
and you make a even just a you don't even mentally do it but your body takes that in reading stuff on a page that is numbers and letters that don't relate to the physical thing that you're doing it's like using one part of your brain to do something that should be done by the other part of your brain and so you kind of like when I follow recipes that I've never followed before I'm a chef 10 years love cooking cooked every day of my life as much as I can I if I follow a recipe, I have no idea what I did at the end of it. And I'm like, yeah, I made this. I don't know what's in it. I don't know how much of anything went in. I just followed the recipe. But when I cook something intuitively, I know exactly what I did. I know exactly what went in. And I know why I did it. And I've learned more about all of those things than I did by making a recipe. Wow. I know I am super inspired now to get into my kitchen, just start throwing a bunch of stuff around. Um, and I'm, I'm being intentionally silly cause I know that's not what it, being an intuitive eating or, cook, or cooking is, but, um, it's so, it's so fun to think about for me. And I know that Hope and I have had all kinds of conversations about stuff like this. And I know she feels really similar about like, you know, why we do, why we like to cook and why we like to share and why we like food. Um, and so I, I hope that others that are listening are also inspired to go and to, to remove some expectations from yourself and from your cooking and, uh, to just really start to, to hopefully be able to view it in that positive way. And we would encourage anyone to, if they think that they are having a, you know, a, a negative relationship with food to, to really think about why and how, and how I might be able to change that. So um, really appreciate Sal, you coming on and sharing um, the ways that you've been able to help yourself and help encourage others to have a more positive relationship with food. Um, and a, or a more, or a more joyful relationship with food. If we're going to harken back to your book, 10, 10 ways to, uh, have a more joyful relationship with food. Sal, can you tell everyone where we can find you on the internet, um, in books, uh, anything else, um, online, where can we find you? Definitely. So, um, you can get on my website, which is thefoodwitch.com and my Instagram, which is at foodwitchsal. Uh, that's kind of where I do the majority of my work and social interaction. Um, and I also, so I have my book, which is 10 Steps to a More Joyful Relationship with Food, which you can get from my website, or you can also get from Amazon pretty much anywhere in the world. And I am um, literally just finishing the final touches to a new course, which I'm putting out, which is what I'm hoping is going to be kind of everything that you just said in your lovely summary of what I'm trying to do, which is like for, for someone like you who, you know, is inspired to go and start throwing around things in your kitchen, but maybe doesn't have access to the same, you know, I, you know, I'm so lucky in the culture that I've had and the upbringing that I have, that my connection to food has always been, you know, cultivated and prioritized. I've got this course, which is an online on demand course with live support sessions from me, which is about giving you, the core building blocks to start exploring that relationship with food intuitively with some guidance that means that you can you know learn and um sort of practice within the bounds and experiment within the bounds of, of guidance which means that you don't feel completely lost and you feel like you have a, a little bit of guidance but no recipes that's for sure um so my course is also up on my website um so you can access that there that's so great. And like Sal said, you can find her um, at The Food Witch on most places on the internet, um, social medias. You can also head over to the to Femidish's Instagram and website, and you can find information about Sal there. You can find Femidish on Instagram at Femidish. 
and on Facebook at Femidish, that's F-E-M-I-D-I-S-H, and also on our website at Femidish.com. And if you have more questions for Sal and you want to learn more about intuitive eating or you have other questions about, um, you know, uh, just food and feminism or suggestions for other women that we should be bringing on the show, you can always email us any of that information at femidish at gmail.com. We love to hear from listeners and we want to know what you all want to hear too. So Sal, thank you again so much for sharing all this. This is really uh, uplifting, really enlightening. Um, and I hope a, a little bit educational for everyone. So thank you so much for coming all the way from London to talk with us tonight. Thank you so much. It was a very long journey all the way to my quiet <laughs> bedroom away from my dog. Yes, yes, and we were all safe. We all, you know, it's the all all the all the PPE and you know mask and everything. <laughs> exactly. I'm I'm completely covered. <laughs> That's great. Well, thank you everyone for listening, and we will see you next time. We were trying to save the world I was picking up the house Why don't you put it down? Come over Come over